Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, Awaken. I would say it's nice to see you, but um, I'll say I wish I could see you. I sure miss you. I've seen a few of you here and there, but it's not the same. Um, So I guess I would say I hope you are well, and I hope that this finds you like making it. Thriving is maybe a little bit ambitious at the at this point. I get it, but I hope that you're well. That despite all that is around us and all that you might be experiencing and feeling and hearing, that um, like the hymn writer said, it is well with my soul, despite the circumstance that I find myself in. So. Uh, this morning, I want to begin. I was thinking about offering some kind of um, blessing or prayer, or and I thought to myself, "Geez, here's a curveball. What if you played a song for the people?" <laughs> Which hasn't been done in a very long time. No one even knows I'm doing this except for Nick, who's here today. So we'll see how this goes. But this is a song that I come back to again and again, and it's a prayer, a really short and simple one. I think it was one of the prophets who um, was just really honest with God, and some of the the lyrics of this sort of get to, I think, the, the depth and the levels of the things that many of us are feeling and thinking on a day-to-day basis, Um, and then the chorus comes in, and it's this reminder that it is the same God that we cry out to in our anxiety and in our sadness and even in our depression or our anger that the psalmist and the prophet come back to and say, and yet, and still, I trust you and you have been faithful. And so we're going to begin with that. Redeem my soul 
friends, a couple of announcements before we get to the teaching here this morning, um, really only one, and that is related to the annual meeting. So the annual meeting is coming up May the 17th. Uh, by now, it is May the 3rd, and you should have in your inbox the annual report as a PDF, and that will detail all of the reports from the staff at Awaken and uh, the things we want to bring to your attention over the past year, as well as uh, the proposed budget and um, nominations for next year's pastoral advisory team. So here are the details you should know. Uh, we are waiting for the governor's comments and um, maybe filling in the, the color on what May 4th really means to us in our state. Uh, there will be some restrictions that are lessened and some things opened up and we're really not sure what those are at the time of this recording. So will we have a annual meeting in person in the church on May 17th, quite frankly, right now, we don't know. Um, it's possible that we'll do that by Zoom, but it's possible we'll do some variation of that depending on what Governor Walls recommends. So um, just keep the date marked. Uh, we'll usually start that around 5.30 on Sunday, May 17th, and next week when you get the podcast and all of the documents related to it, there will either be a link for a Zoom annual meeting or instructions on how we're gonna do that in person. So be on the lookout, friends. That is all I have to say about that. Let's get to Acts chapter five. And I gotta be perfectly honest, friends, this is the first time in a long time where I am very, very excited to teach you this morning because I found something this week that I have never found before. Uh, I feel like a little kid who gets to leave with his backpack and like go wandering around in the woods looking for something fun to bring back to his friends. And I found something this week. So ah, we're in a series called Implications. And for those uh, who haven't been with us, we're, we're, we're working out the, the implications of resurrection. Uh, the word implication is the conclusion that can be drawn from something, although it's not explicitly stated. So we're looking at the book of Acts and the first Christians who were trying to make sense of what does it mean that Jesus was dead and is now resurrected from the dead uh, and that the spirit has been given to the church um, for a particular purpose. And so we're going through the book of Acts story by story and asking that question, what are the implications of this story then uh, in, its, in its first context and now for us? So last week we looked at uh, Peter, and James, I think, I always remember, can't remember if it's James or John, one of those guys, uh, who unschooled and ordinary men who had been with Jesus, Luke says, uh, 
and uh, how these people, these unschooled and ordinary people are often used by God to sort of upend the power structures and the kingdoms and the, the ways in which the world works. Now, as an Enneagram 8, I love a story like that, you know, where the underdogs outlast and outwit the powerful and the elite and kind of stick it to the man. Um, maybe you like that story as well, I don't know. But that's where we were last week. This week, we're in Acts chapter 5. Verses 1 to 11, and one of the more, dare I say, alarming, disturbing stories in the New Testament, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who are struck dead at the apostles' feet, and I am entitling this message, you gotta be kidding me. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Some of you know I spent a lot of time looking for those clips, and when I found them, I was just filled with such delight and joy. That was from Liar Liar, Jim Carrey, Come On, and uh, Mission Impossible. So the title of my sermon is, Come On, You Have Got to Be Kidding Me. Like, what do you take me for? Some sort of joker? Is this some sort of Christmas joke here? Uh, Imagine God saying, oh, come on, you have got to be kidding me. That's the title of my message, for reasons that I hope will become clear in a moment. Um, So Acts chapter 5, without further ado, here we go. Stand if you are able somewhere, someplace in the earth. Um, Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Somewhat complicated there. Uh, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Imagine if that was your job at the church. Um, About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, Tell me, is this your price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Pray with me, if you will. God, this morning, as we pause for a moment to consider what on earth does this story have to do with us, and uh, what was going on when it first happened? How did it happen? Did it happen? Did it happen like this? I pray that your spirit would bring illumination and life and hope and a word of encouragement to us as we seek to figure out what are the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection in 2020. I pray these things by the strong name of Christ and in the power of the spirit and all God's people said together, Amen and amen. Um, Okay, friends, a little bit of background for the book of Acts, if you are just joining us. Remember, Acts is the second volume of Luke's gospel. So the first volume that 
the Gospel of Luke, he's telling the story of Jesus the Messiah who dies and is resurrected. In the second volume, the book of Acts, he's telling us the story of how that story and its message make its way out into the world and begin to sort of upend and flip the world on its, on its head. It's the story of an upside down kingdom in some ways. It's about revolution, revolution, as the French might say. I was listening this week to Spotify and there was a French song that came on and I thought to myself, gosh, I really like French. What a cool language. So it's about revolution. It's about how love wins. It's about how hope and justice confront anything that opposes the spirit of God at work in the world. And this story may be one of the more stunning examples of that. And can we be perfectly honest? This is a bizarre story. This is maybe like a little teaser for Lost in Translation for the summer. Um, uh, if I were... Uh, if we were together, I might throw out this question as an all-play question, like, what happens in you when you hear a story like this? Or, uh, like, what are the questions you have or the comments you want to make when you hear a story like this? Maybe, actually, if you're with people, pause the podcast and have that discussion. What are the questions you want to ask and what, are the, uh, what happens in you when you hear a story like this? I think it's stories like this that give the Bible and people who value the Bible and want to live by the Bible in all kinds of trouble. Because, like, let, let's get this straight, right? This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they own this land. Like, no reason for any of us to believe it's not theirs or that they stole it or it came by it, you know, through nefarious ways. The text doesn't tell us that. And so from a 21st century perspective, like there's no reason for any concern. They own some land. They decide to sell the land. Maybe they make some profit from the sale of the land, which is theirs. And they decide to keep some of the money, which is theirs, like nothing wrong here. And they decide, actually, we're gonna give some of the money to the apostles and to this new movement of Jesus. Like, pause just for a second. To us, as Americans, as capitalists, like, no problem here. They're well within their rights to sell their land. They own the land and to keep as much of the profit as they want, because it's theirs. In fact, it's pretty generous of them, right, to take some of the money that's theirs and give it away for the benefit of others. Like, this is, this is part of the reason why I think so many of us have a hard time with this passage, myself included. Like, the actions against Ananias and Sapphira, they're unconstitutional for crying out loud. Uh, and it seems to be driven by God or the spirit of God. And I thought God blessed America. And so, like, why would God be punishing kind and generous capitalists, right? I mean, seriously, it's a good question. Um, it, it seems like the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Like, I don't know if some of you remember I was suspended a while back for praying in the wrong place. And there was a whole lot of nuance there and some things that I did wrong along the way. But somebody once said in a meeting, like, I think the punishment doesn't fit the crime here. And, to which I agreed, but that didn't matter. Um, I was suspended. And it seems like in this case, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Like these two people sell some land, they keep some of the money for themselves, maybe there was some, you know, uh, withholding of information, who knows, read between the lines, but it seems at least like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. So it's a tricky little passage. And then furthermore, we are compelled or we love to ask questions like, did it happen? Or did God kill those people because they withheld money from the sale of a property that was theirs to begin with? We love these questions, like, did it happen? Historically, did that happen? And then with our commitment to the Bible, if we have a commitment to the Bible and its authority, if the Bible says it happened, even if it sounds crazy, I have to say it happened. Even if I sound crazy by saying that. 
Or did God kill these people because they sold money or sold property that was theirs? That doesn't seem fair. God seems like a jerk. But what if, what if I let you off the hook? Or no, maybe that's not the best way to say it. What if I let you out of that box? What if I like open the door to that little box that we often live in as 21st century, you know, empiricists, and I let you out of that box? Gave you permission to like put down the instruments and the measuring tools and the Bunsen burners and the calipers, like put them away, get out of our truth laboratory and our historicity laboratory and our fact check laboratory. And we asked a few different kinds of questions. Like for example, where are we in this story that's being told? Like what's the narrative arc? And does it have anything to do with the story that's being told? How does this story like fit into that? Or what moment is this in the story that Luke is trying to tell? Another way to ask that question. Or like, have we been here before in the Bible? That's a great question. Or what are the implications of this event in the larger story that's being told in Luke Acts? and in the Bible. I think if we were free to ask these questions, if we let go of did it happen or did God kill them, we might possibly find something more fruitful for us to live in and to think about in 2020. So, no surprise to any of you, I'm gonna let you out of that box. Here's what I wanna do for the rest of our time. I wanna ask a few of these questions and allow them to inform our study and our search to see if this story, which seems a little bewildering, falls into place at all by asking these questions. Here are the questions. Number one, have we been here before in the Bible? Number two, if so, what moment was that? And does it shed light on what moment is this in the book of Acts? And then three, what are the implications of this in the larger story and in our story? So, Buckle up, friends, here we go. Uh, First, have we been here before in the Bible? And no surprise, the answer to that question is yes, we have. And this is what I found this week, which I can't believe I have never found before. One of the tools in your toolbox as a Bible reader is if you ever find yourself confused in one part, like, I can't believe this story, like, what is this, this is nonsense, this cannot be true, or there's gotta be another way to think about that. You should ask yourself, is there another story that's similar to it that came before it? And and often, if you're in the New Testament and you ask that question, you'd be surprised at the number of times the answer is yes. This is a very common tactic or tool or way by which the New Testament writers are telling stories where they'll tap into a story from the Old Testament that you would have probably heard before and give new meaning to it. So, Where do we find a story similar to Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead in the divine presence or by the divine presence? For that, we must turn to Leviticus chapter 10. So find your Bibles, people. Leviticus chapter 10, verse one says this. Aaron's sons, remember Moses and Aaron are brothers. Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu. Couple of names for you pregnant ladies out there. Those are free. Nadab and Abihu took their censers. These are like um, the things you would gather up the coals and and remove them from the altar with, the censers, okay? The coal removal tools. Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died. 
before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proven holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elsaphon, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and they carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp as Moses had ordered. <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, not that these two guys died, that's awful. But I love the fact that I've never found that before and never seen it. So here we are in the book of Leviticus. We have a story that is eerily similar to Acts chapter five. So let's unpack it a little and see if we can understand what moment is this in the book of Leviticus, see if it sheds light on where we are in Acts. Simple, right? Here we go. Um, Exodus, the story of the Exodus in which the book of Leviticus fits. But where are we in the book of Leviticus in terms of like the whole story of the Exodus, right? The Israelites have left Egypt where they were enslaved and oppressed and powerless for 400 years. Get your thinking caps on, friends. Stick with me here. The Israelites have left Egypt. There they were oppressed, they were powerless, they were slaves for 400 years. They leave there and they are now in the Sinai Peninsula east of Egypt before they make their way to the edge of the promised land in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers tells us that about two years have passed since the Exodus, they leave Egypt and they get to the, to the edge of the land, okay? And something very important has happened in the time in the space between, to quote Dave Matthews. That is the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. Think Charlton Heston, think Moses, he goes up onto the mountain. This is Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives the law, and two things to note about this event. The first, the nature of the law. The second, the purpose or the intent of the law. So first, the nature of the law. When we think about the law or Torah for Israel, the people, many of us, myself for much of my life included, see it as like 613 things you can't do. All the rules and regulations and prohibitions and what happens if you break the rules. Like for many of us, it was punitive and prohibitive. There is no upside to the law. This is not a good thing. This is a category mistake and a function of anachronism and ethnocentrism. Like we force our time, anachronism, and our culture, ethnocentrism, on the ancient Torah law of Israel and we judge it by our standards. And inevitably, of course, we miss the point. Remember, the Israelites, they're enslaved, they're oppressed, they are powerless, they have no control, they have no executive power, they have no agency as a people or community, they have no identity, they are erased. Unless something happens. Torah was not primarily about rules and regulations and prohibitions and seen as negative. Rather, it was the instructions and the empowerment to become a people once again. I say this all the time. The first step in spiritual journey is always a version of fundamentalism. So it makes perfect sense that the Israelites' first step out of nothingness, um, non-personhood, non-community, non-identity is a very rule uh, or regulated identity, a very regulated way of inhabiting that identity. And then they become, because of Torah, the instructions and empowerment to become a people once again, a people that's marked by an identity and a certain way of being human in the world. A people that's marked by equality, equity, and justice for the rich and the poor. This is what so many people don't see in the, in the law, in Torah. 
It doesn't just let the, the, the haves have more and the have-nots have less. No, Torah actually levels the playing field. It lets everybody come to the table and everybody worship Yahweh. It's a people that's marked by equity and justice where that which is broken is put back together. It's a people that's marked by relationship with the divine that is clear and consistent, right? Not a deity who's unpredictable and per, 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 precocious, precarious, um, capricious, that's the word. Not a God who's unpredictable and capricious, like with whom you, you don't know where you're standing. You're always looking over your shoulder trying to wonder, have I pleased the gods? No, 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 no. Everything's clear. You know exactly where you stand based on this law. It's life to you. The law, if embodied and lived out by Israel, is an invitation to a new reality, a new way of being human in the world, marked by fellowship and relationship with the divine. The nature of the law is not prohibition and punitive measures. No, it's life. It's an invitation to embody and become a new people in the world, marked by a relationship with God. Second, the purpose of this whole project, Israel and Torah, which is found in Exodus 19, where Moses hears from God and God says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the earth is mine, you, all of you, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hold on to that. So the book of Leviticus is a detailed description of what the law is and how Israel is to live it out, okay? They get this book, or this book is situated somewhere between the Exodus moment in Egypt and Numbers chapter 11. So here in the middle there, they get this book called Leviticus, the detailed description of what the law is and how Israel's to live it out. Chapters one to seven give detailed descriptions of all the different sacrifices that they are to offer. This seems really boring and incessant. It is not. They have the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, but more specifically, there are provisions in the law so everyone can participate. How to bring about reconciliation between God and humanity. How to bring about reconciliation between two humans where something has been broken. How to bring about justice and the repairing of that which is broken, and the lengths to which God has gone to detail every aspect of human life together as a community to enable shalom for the whole community. This is what Leviticus is about. So then, chapters eight and nine come in, and they're about the ordination of and the installation of the priests in Israel. Friends, if you read these two chapters, it's bonkers. There's pomp and circumstance. It's like a circus. There are blessings and there's oil on their heads. There's fancy clothes. There's rituals. There's singing and there's prayers. There's offering of sacrifices and incense and smoke. It's like a grand show and it's all done in front of the people. Why? Because it's for the people. The priests... They're ordained to this ministry and this task, and then they're installed to begin the work of this office for the people. Why? The priests were not supposed to have this job forever and ever, amen, but rather they were to embody and enact these very clear and straightforward rituals and boundaries because the whole project of Israel, according to Exodus 19, is that they, the whole they, would be a nation of priests for the whole world. 
showing what it looked like to live in relationship with the divine and with one another where there was justice and peace for everybody. So beautiful. So what is this moment in Leviticus 8 through 10 in the story of the Exodus and Israel? You could say it's the climax. It's the main event. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. The law has been given. The priests have been ordained to the work. They've been installed to the work. This is the first moment after the bell has been rung. It's the first day of a new generation of people, no longer marked by chaos and oppression and slavery, but by agency in their own lives and a community with a redemptive identity in the world. And what happens next? Two idiot teenagers grab their coal remover tools, put incense in them, offer unwarranted and unscripted fire before the Lord. Like you can imagine someone saying, come on, you have got to be kidding me. After all they've been through, after all that God has done to bring them to this point, think Egypt, the plagues, the Exodus, the Red Sea, manna, quail, water from the rock, Sinai, the tablets, the law. Don't forget the building of the tabernacle to worship Yahweh and offer sacrifice so that they could be a people in relationship with Yahweh, a nation of priests, so the world would know who God is and what God is like. This moment and the gravity of this moment It's like life and death. To ask, did God really kill those boys, might be the wrong question. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, have we been here before? Yeah, we have. Where? Leviticus chapter 10. And what moment was that for Israel? It was the pinnacle. Is where the whole story was headed. It's that moment where all that God had done to bring the people to this point where they could step into a reality and respond with gratitude and humility and obedience. And two knuckleheads missed it. I want to suggest that Acts chapter 5 is the same exact moment again. And I want to suggest that Luke is no dummy that he knows what this moment is, the importance of it. He knows that Jesus' death and resurrection and now the giving of the Spirit to the church at Pentecost is everything that the people need to step into a new identity as humanity, to a new humanity, one that's no longer marked by division, by selfishness, by injustice, by tribalism and slavery and oppression, but rather communion, union, fellowship, relationship, freedom, generosity, shalom, And to miss this moment and the gravity of it, it's like life and death. Did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I don't know. Maybe. But I think it's a really boring question. Why did that happen at that moment in this point in the story is a far deeper question. Krista Tippett always says, answers beget, no, questions beget answers of their kind. You ask a shallow question, you get a shallow answer. You ask a very deep and profound question, and I would suggest that you get, or you have the possibility of getting deep and profound answers. Let me close with this. Two things. 
Well, well, let me close with, what, what are the implications of this event in the larger story of the Bible and for us in, in our story? So two thoughts. One, I think it's important to highlight the lengths to which God has gone, which are incalculable, and the invitation of God is inexhaustible. Friends, like what God has done in the story of Leviticus to, to bring the people to that point, to, to like set the table for them to step into a reality, it's incalculable. The, the, the lengths to which God has gone to offer to you and I on this side of the resurrection of Jesus the Christ and the giving of the spirit to the church, it's like inestimable. You, you can't put a price tag on it. As the first Christians are working out the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection, and as we make our way from Easter Sunday morning in 2020, I wanna suggest, I wanna remind us, I think we would do well not to forget the massive move that God has made. And it is more than enough for us to be the people God invites us to be. God has gone to the greatest lengths possible, the death and resurrection of Jesus, to create a body of people in the world who will be the host for the presence of the living God. What do you think communion is? Eucharist, the good gift of God, the presence, the host. And we take that into ourselves. The spirit of God dwells in us as believers in, and as the church. And we are then little Eucharists running around the world, hosting the very presence of God. The lengths to which God has gone are incalculable. And God's invitation is inexhaustible. What I find fascinating is that we've been here before in the Bible. Right? Humans seem to have this uncanny ability to screw it up where God sets the table and makes, like, gives the invitation to step into this reality and we just keep missing it. And yet God keeps inviting. Like God's invitation, it's inexhaustible. But that begs the question, like what do we do with that? Do we then follow suit? Do we become those kinds of people? I was having this discussion with one of my best friends this week. Like, how do we discern when grace should be our response, where we give someone one more try, or we open the door one more time, or we offer opportunity for relationship once again? Like, how do we not become enablers or codependent where we become shells of people that get, like, that is such a difficult conversation to navigate. And this person said something to me that was just on point. She said, if you have inexhaustible capacity, and a well of grace that never runs dry, then yeah, you just keep saying grace, grace, and grace. But if your well and your capacity is limited, then there may come a moment, a time, a point when you say, in order for me to be whole and healthy, I have to surrender you to God. This is the razor's edge, friends, of living as finite and limited beings, where we follow the resurrected Christ, who is the inexhaustible love of God made known. And we're called to follow in those footsteps, and yet you and I, we are exhaustible. We are limited. And so how do we navigate that? I don't pretend to have answers to, very, to those kinds of questions. I just want to recognize that they're in the room. 
And at the same time, I want to remind us in this story and in the whole of Scripture itself, God's love and grace are unending and inexhaustible. And the lengths to which God has gone to make it possible for us to be a community of people in relationship with God and, and, and being ambassadors for God in the world is nothing short of a miracle. The other thing I'll say as we close and we kind of work out the implications of Ananias and Sapphira for us in 2020 is that scarcity as a response never brings more life. It can only put a hedge around what we already have. See, this moment for Ananias and Sapphira brings into sharp contrast the spirit of generosity and abundance and the spirit of scarcity. And again, we're not told a lot of the details in this story, but I think from the apostles' response and their questions and what happens to this couple, like we could probably deduce that there may have been a spirit of scarcity at play between the lines of this story. And to quench or block or stand in the way of the spirit's work of generosity to bring more and more and more life is antithetical to what we were created from and what we were created for. Scarcity and withholding, grasping, never brings more life. It can only protect what is present, and it lacks tov. It lacks the possibility, the potential for more life, the seeds for the future. Which reminds me of the story of the Israelites in the Exodus. They're wandering in the desert. They're wondering if they're going to die from starvation when God brings manna and quail and water from the rock. And the question that they're faced with is do we believe that there's enough for today and that there will be enough for tomorrow? Right? They run around out there and a whole bunch of them gather way more than they need because they believe there won't be enough for today and there won't be enough for tomorrow. I don't know about you, but I love to imagine God looking a lot like myself. <laughs> you know that we do that, don't you? We, we all create God in our own image. And if I were God, in this moment, when Ananias and Sapphira withhold and block the spirit of generosity, I can imagine just screaming, come on, you have got to be kidding me. But that's not what God seems to do, is it? Because my capacity for grace, compassion, is limited, and God seems to be limitless and inexhaustible. God, on the other hand, gathers up the pieces and says again, there's enough for today and there will be enough for tomorrow. Now go and be my people in the world. Be the kingdom of priests who represent me to the people. Can you do that this week? Yeah? Okay. Let's go. Pray with me. God, as we take a few moments of silence to consider the gravity of this moment in the story, and what it would have meant to be confronted with the inexhaustible and incalculable measures and lengths that you have gone to offer the opportunity to step into a new humanity, to be the people of God in the world, to represent the good and loving heart of the divine. And to think about the ways that we miss it, that we become Ananias and Sapphira that we see only the things in front of us 
that we forget the ways in which you have been faithful time and time again. And the moments when we lean towards the temptation of holding on and grasping and scarcity because we're afraid instead of opening up and offering because we live in abundance and generosity. So Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Maybe illuminate the places from which we're living in fear and invite us to the places of living with great courage for the world that we find ourselves in today. I was visiting with a friend in her kitchen several years ago, and I went to the cupboard to get something, and her cupboards were bare. Um, She had like a can of beans and a bag of rice. And I turned to her to make a comment about, uh, just make a joke, like, looks like someone needs to go to the grocery store. And um, her face had just fallen, and I realized um, something was going on, and she explained that they actually were food insecure at that at that point. And um, it took me by surprise because she was college educated. Her husband had a great job, but life had just beset them um, and they they found themselves in this place. So years later, I was talking with her and it felt like those events had really scarred her. She was scared about having enough and it was hard for her to get through that, to get over that. And um, I wrote this song to her. I picture myself across the table from her, holding her hands, um, saying, we'll get through this. Um, You got through that, and we'll get through it again. And especially because we're talking about it now, and we're, we're in it together. Questions are drawn like a thin red line No comfort left over No safe harbor in sight Really we don't need much Just strength to believe There's honey in the rock There's more than we see 
stretches of joy, these stretches of sorrow, there's enough for today, there'll be enough tomorrow. Upstairs, a child is sleeping, what a As we make our way to the table where we celebrate the good gift of God, the Eucharist, I'm reminded that we are given something in this moment. We are put back together. We are filled up with the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus on our behalf that God offers something to us that we do not have, but that we need. And as we take these in, we are then invited to leave this place and to go from here as the Eucharist, the church, the good gift of God to the world. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God, those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often, you who have not been here for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because the church invites you or even because I invite you, but because the resurrected Christ invites you to be known and to be fed here at the table. As you take the bread, hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. As you go from wherever you are into whatever this week holds for you, my hope and my prayer is that you know that you are loved, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor depth, no distance, no action, no force outside of yourself, can keep you from the love of God. So know that you are blessed, that the Lord has blessed you and is keeping you, that the Lord is lifting up his face to you and is being gracious to you even in this moment, that the Lord's countenance is lifted up towards you, that God's face is towards your face, and God's peace is your peace. Grace and peace, my friends. See you next time.